Now, I'm very excited that we get to continue in our series that we have been going through our summer series of One Size Fits None. I know it's a, it's, it's a funny name for a series, but again, we're looking at these ideas that like maybe a one-size-fits-all approach to our faith just doesn't work. That what works for you to connect with God and receive His love and show His love may not be what the same, uh, the same way as the person who's sitting next to you. And so we're trying to figure out over the next couple of weeks, what are the different ways that we all connect to God so that we can learn about them if we're strong in it, so we can really engage with God that way. But if we're not, we can learn about it to help encourage those around us who may be struggling, and maybe that's their connection point. But if we're going to do this, we're going to have to pray a prayer that's been being prayed for like 1,500 years, that wonderful prayer of Augustine that says simply, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee, right? We're going to have to figure out who we are. And when we do that, we understand more of who God is, which allows us to experience a greater sense of love. And last week, we did look a little bit at uh, the naturalist, this wonderful way of connecting to God outside. And when we looked at that, I started there because we have that spiritual assessment tool that you can uh, jump onto our website, check it out, fill it out. And again, it's just a simple tool. This is not like set in stone. This is who you are, and that's who you'll always be. Things will shift, and they always will. But we looked at the naturalist because it was one of uh, my strongest, and I thought, hey, this is high, this should be easy. Um, And I thought it would be fun to look at the caregiver this week. The caregiver. And the caregiver, this pathway that we're going to be looking at is all about loving God by loving others. And this pathway that we're talking about is all about focusing on expressing love for God through acts of service, through nurturing others. Um, People who are wired to be caregivers, their souls are filled when they're meeting the needs of other people around them. Now, if you purchase the book, Sacred Pathways, which it's fun, I know a handful of you have, if you're reading through this and you're like, oh, Naturalist was chapter one, and then you're like, wait, caregivers, not till chapter eight, like, wait, wait, are we just skipping a bunch of chapters? Like, can you do that? Yeah, we can do whatever we want. That's what's great at Crossbridge, right? Um, Books are not always meant to be read in order unless it's a novel, then don't skip to the end. That's no fun. Um, Unless you have to write a report, skip to the end. One of the reasons I picked Caregiver for this week was uh, it's one of my lowest scores. And I know that would be a little weird to hear, like, wait, my pastor's, uh, like, Caregiver is low on his list? Like, (gasps) yeah, it just is. It was a pretty low number for me. And not that it's, it's like, I don't know how to do this. It's just not my natural way of connecting to God. And, but I will tell you, it's something I'm learning. It's something I'm growing in. It's something I'm learning to connect with God. And you as a church, believe it or not, have really helped me to grow in this. And uh, it's it's funny, a couple of years ago when I had started and I took on the role of lead pastor here at Crossbridge, there was someone in our church who went into the hospital for surgery. And so they went in for quadruple bypass surgery and, you know, I was like, okay, pastors make hospital visits, we'll go in, and, and, and I, I actually like hospital visits most of the time, and I like being able to pray with people, and, and you know, it's fine. So I went into his room, actually I got there early, and I was waiting with his wife, 
and his family um, through the surgery. Surgery was successful, praise God. And they were like, he's in recovery. You guys can go in now. And I was like, oh, wonderful. So I go in with the family and I've got my, my passages ready and I'm ready to be all pastoral and pray. And so I get to the side of the bed. I look at him. He's still out. And, and the family's looking at me expectantly like, oh, where's the blessing? And it's like, okay, here we go. And I put my hand on the bed. I look down. And that's when I saw the tube. <laughs> you know that there's a, there's a drainage tube and there's blood in that tube. I have never closed a prayer so fast in my life. I was, oh, oh Lord, be here in Jesus' name, amen. <gasps> and, and I started, I knew I was getting lightheaded. Something was off and I was like, this isn't good. And I was like, amen, love you guys. And I start to walk out of the room. And as I walk out of the room, I kid you not, passed out right in the hallway right in the hallway, dead out. I was gone. I start coming to, and his wife, who is an amazing caregiver, she's like the epitome of caregiver. She has one hand on my, on my back, and then she's patting my chest. Pastor Jimmy, are you okay? Pastor Jimmy, you're okay? And I look up, and I'm like, why is his wife patting my chest? <laughs> Passed out again. You know what's funny? Caregiving that day was not demonstrated by Pastor Jimmy. Caregiving that day was demonstrated and given by the guy who had quadruple bypass. His dad, who was in his 80s and 90s, sat with me in the ER till one of our elders, Mike Brandon, had come and he's like, I'll hang out with you. And I was like, yeah, you might want to hang out with people where there's blood because obviously I can't do this. I'm just not good at it. I, I realize that when I start seeing things like that, you will guarantee, like if you start to explain to me a great story, oh, guess what? You'll never believe this injury. I will tell you to stop. I don't want to pass out. I don't do well with that stuff. So it's like, I've always assumed, but I'm not good at that stuff. I don't do this stuff. I must not be a caregiver. And so I, I just stop. Can I just stop for a second and say to doctors and nurses and techs and all you people that do this stuff, thank you for what you do. Um, seriously, thank you for what you do. I could never do that. I could never do that. And that phrase, I could never do that, is usually said by most of us when we look at caregivers and we see them doing something that's so natural for them, but we say, I could never do that. I could never do what they do while they're sitting there looking at you thinking, sure, anyone can do this. This is, this is easy, but, but it's not. It's not, it's what they're wired to do. And I thought for such a long time, because I couldn't be around blood, it all made me uneasy, that I'm just not a natural caregiver. But I have learned at Pastoring Crossbridge, you guys have helped me as a whole to look at this completely different. And it's really helped me understand that I, I do know how to do this, and, and I do connect to God in this, it's just differently. Hanging out with many of you who are natural caregivers has helped me understand that giving care isn't a chore but a form of worship. Giving care isn't a chore, but a form of worship. When you're a natural caregiver, this is the way that you worship God. Now, I'll be honest, I grew up in a home where uh, my mom was a caregiver, and I don't think she ever knew it. It's just what she did. Uh, we would, when I was very, very young, we would always go to the house of someone. Her name was Grandma Gray, I remember my mom always saying, but she's not related to us, but just we'll call her Grandma Gray. And I'm like, okay, I guess we'll do that. 
I remember the red house. I remember the, the cement steps. I remember the smell of the house when we went in, the creak of the door, sitting down, and my mom saying, you know, don't eat too many cookies. And, and you know, but my mom would show up, and we would sit there for, I guess it, when you're young, it felt like 18 hours, um, but it was like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. She would go and visit. I remember that in our home, we, had, uh, we always had people staying with us. When my parents' friends found themselves down and out, and they, they couldn't really get on their own feet, they would stay with us for weeks or months until they can get their feet on the ground. And it was normal to have people staying in our home that, that I didn't know. And it was like, okay, this is what they did. I remember being bored out of my mind. Every couple of weeks, my mom's like, okay, got to go give blood. And I'm like, who needs all this blood? But every eight weeks, she would give blood. To this day, every eight weeks, she gives blood. And I'll tell you, I never saw it then. But today, I can look back and see what the life of a caregiver looks like. That this act of worship, of, of giving blood, visiting uh, someone who no one else is going to visit, continuing to open a home to people who are overlooked, this way of connecting to God, I didn't understand. And what I love as I look through scriptures, this is not a new way of connecting to God. This is not something that is, is a Jesus thing. This is actually found all throughout the Bible that people connect to God through helping and caring for others. And one of my favorite stories of this is the story of Mordecai, which Brianna had read um, right at the, the beginning of this time from the Old Testament. And if, if, you would, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to turn to the book of Esther. It'll be in the Old Testament near the uh, first half of your Bible. And as you're turning there, this is a book that is amazing. It's just really, really amazing. It's 10 chapters. It's packed with drama. It's got romance, conspiracy, murder. Um, it'd, be, it'd be a top 10 Netflix series if they put it um, onto film, I'm telling you. Uh, if you've never read this book, let me set the stage for you for a second so that you understand where Mordecai comes in. The Jewish nation had disobeyed God for quite a bit, and as, uh, if you're reading Ezekiel with us, as we've been soaping, you understand that they have been taken into exile. They were taken away from Israel, and all the Jews were now in Babylon. They, they get taken over by Babylon about 100 years before this story takes place, but about 50 years before this story takes place, Persian the Persians come through. They are the massive army. They take out the Babylonians, and now they have control. And all the Jewish people are not just camped out in one little area. They're now scattered throughout the Persian Empire. They're all over. And it's, it's wild because this territory was huge. The Persian territory is huge, like Ethiopia to India is what we're talking. It's just a huge amount of land. And what happens is in the beginning of this book, the king, his name's King Xerxes, and Brianna killed it on that pronunciation. Well done. It's always hard with an X name. King Xerxes decides because of all of these, this power that I now hold, I'm going to throw a bender, like 180 days of partying to where people are just, they understand how awesome I am, how big this empire is. And so he throws this massive party. And what's funny is in um, the Middle East, uh, still today at weddings, uh, many of them, the men will party in one place and the women will party in another. They, they still celebrate in the same venue, but they're separately dancing and having fun. And it sounds like a pretty fun party. But all the men are partying together. Esther chapter 1 tells us that they're drinking pretty heavily. And when King Xerxes is uh, 
We'll call him saturated. How's that? When he's saturated, he decides, and I'm not sure what prompts it other than maybe a couple comments from the boys, he decides it is a good time for me to call my wife to come in and show her off a little bit. So he calls for his wife, who's now throwing this massive party of her own with all the ladies, and she kind of rejects it. She's like, no, you're not, I'm not coming there. You're not showing me off to all the boys while they're all saturated, and I'm, I'm not doing this. Well, all the guys get super ticked off. It says that Xerxes is super angry about everything, and he's like, what am I going to do? And he takes the worst advice ever from his friends that say, squash all these women so that they know their place, make, a, um, make an example of her, and just be done. And he's like, yeah, it's a good idea. Don't make major decisions when you're saturated. That's what he does. Then he realizes this isn't good. So he holds a nationwide bachelorette, if you will. I got to find a wife. I got to find a wife. And so they start parading these women in front of him to pick a wife. And what's wild is, is while all this is going on, Mordecai, this person that we're looking at, he's got a job where he works in the fortress of the king. That's what he does. And this is what the author tells us about Mordecai. This is it. In Esther 2, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, this man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadasha, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. So what we have is Esther's, uh, Esther's parents pass away, and Mordecai is like, okay, that's my aunt and uncle. I I'll adopt her. I'll take her into my family. And I know that it might be easy to sit here and think like, okay, that's what family does. We, we, we help care for each other and do this. But let's be real. In, in a time when women had little to no value, in a culture where they cost you more than they benefited you, why would you want to adopt another daughter into your home in an area where you're not going to get a lot for this? But the thing is, when you're a caregiver... This would not cost him. This would not be a chore. You see, caring for an orphan in this moment is an act of worship. This is what he does. He's a caregiver. Now, remember how the king is looking for a new wife? Here's what's interesting is that uh, they gather all of these women, and Esther happens to be one of the women that they gather. And they bring her in, and she happens to really hit it off with the stewards who are there, and they're like, yeah, this is, this is good. This is going to work. And so they prep her to really like, make her look good. If Mordecai was trying to pass the buck, he just got rid of Esther. He could have been like, sweet, all done. I did my duty as a family. She's no longer my responsibility. But he's a caregiver, so he doesn't do that. Check out what he does just four verses later in, chapter, or in verse 11. It says that every day Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. He stayed involved with her. He cared for her. She was ultimately picked to be the next queen of Persia. And, and while he's like, this is great, he didn't just care for his family. He actually, he cared about work as well. If you jump down to verse 21 right there, it, it, it says that one day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bith, uh, this is a good one, Bigthana and Teresh, who were the guards at the door of the king, 
and his private quarters became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot, gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it, gave Mordecai the credit for the report, and when an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. And you're like, that, 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 that just turned real quick. Listen, Persia... Here's what's cool. Mordecai finds himself in a place where if the king is assassinated, he's a Jewish steward who could probably go back home. He can take his family, go back to his homeland. He doesn't have to stay. Like, you know the worst boss you've ever had ever? And you're like, if they were gone, this would be great. That, that's kind of the situation. But instead, he speaks up. And here's what's wild is even though Esther gave him all the credit and was like, he's great, he did this, the king completely forgets about it. He doesn't elevate him, he doesn't um, help him, he doesn't give him a new job. Instead, there's this other guy who comes into power, the second in command, his name is Haman. And Haman is just this horrible dude, so self-righteous. And everywhere that he walks and sees second in command, he expects that everyone would bow to him the same way that they bow to the king. Mordecai's not going to have it. Mordecai won't bow to him, so he gets so frustrated, and he, he kind of does this little workaround where he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, and he says, forget this, let's just kill them all. Let's just kill them all, and he convinces the king, let me write a note, because these people are just troublemakers, we'll send it out to all of these provinces that we have, from, from India to Ethiopia, everyone will know, let's kill the Jews, and we'll pick a date, because we're planners, a year into the future, and to make sure that it happens... Here's how you make sure it happens. Whoever kills the family gets to keep their stuff and their property. So now there's incentive. Well, word gets around, and all the Jews hear about this, and now they know their doomsday. And, and Mordecai hears about it. Mordecai just begins to weep, and, and he loves his nation. And he's like, oh, my gosh, what's supposed to happen here? And, and so Esther reaches out, and she reaches out via letter saying, what's, why are you grieving? Why are you mourning? Like, what's going on? Because she doesn't know. And then so, so Mordecai tells her what's going on, and then this is how he responds to the letter. He says, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther in chapter 4. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace that you'll escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. You see, Mordecai served others as his expression of serving God. He loved God and had value for the people around him, whether it was an adopted you know, cousin that he needed, the king that he was serving, or the nation that he was part of. And while it's really easy to be like, oh, caregivers, they must be so soft. They're emotional. They feel for other people, and they're so kind. Let me tell you, caregivers can become loud, bold, and assertive in order to accomplish their mission. They can quickly become activists when injustice towards people goes unaddressed. You see, they will care, and they will keep caring. And if they have to keep caring because there's injustice, they will stand up and they will say something. Never mistake a caregiver's meekness for weakness. They are kind and wonderful 
and they connect to God this way by loving people, but that does not mean that they are weak. They are very strong. And this push for Mordecai, it, 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 this justice inspires the queen. She reaches out to the king. He actually is so frustrated at the whole situation. He rewrites this whole letter and says, you know, now it's good. they're good to go, and the Jews are all saved. And when the Jews are all saved, he goes to the other extreme and takes Haman and pales him on a pole. I guess it's the thing to do in Persia. But after he does all this, he says to Haman, what? do you want to do? And he, he elevates him to this position of authority. Or uh, Mordecai, he elevates him to a position of authority and says, what do you want to do? And I love what he does. He says, we're going to throw a party. Not like your 180-day party. We're going to throw a two-day party with a different purpose. Check out how he tells his whole people and all the nation to celebrate in, in chapter 9. He says, he told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness by giving gifts of food to each other and presents and presents to the poor. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. So the Jews accepted Mordecai's proposal and adopted this annual custom. The annual festival that they throw is defined by gifts for each other and by presents and caring gifts for the poor. It was designed, caregiving was built into the worship of this festival. And the Jews loved this festival so much, they're like, this is great. Let's do this every year. We should do this every year. And still, it's celebrated almost every March. To this day, it's the festival of Purim. So if you're sitting there and you have some Jewish friends who are celebrating Purim, this is what they're celebrating. This exact moment where they realized our enemies are gone, we are free, but caregiving for Mordecai was his way to connect to God, his way to demonstrate the love of God. And when he did that, they built it into a celebration, this huge thing that everyone's going to love. And what is it? We should care for each other and we should care for the poor because that was what they were working against. There was an injustice and he was trying to make it right. And his life is summed up in the very verse that Brianna read for us. In the last verse of this book, it says that Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of the king Xerxes himself. He was a very great man among the Jews who, led him, who held him in high esteem, and check this out, because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. He's not known and elevated because he's the prime minister. He's known and he's elevated because his life was dedicated for the good of his people and speaking up where there was injustice, speaking up for their descendants. Could you really ask for a better summary of your life? If people held you in high esteem, not for how much you had or what positions you held, but if they held you in high esteem and had one thing to say about you, it would be because of how you cared for the people around you. That, to me, is such a beautiful, beautiful goal to live by. And while the Jewish people held him in high esteem for doing this, they did not hold Jesus in that same high esteem for doing this. You see, Jesus' life was also dedicated to caring for the poor, caring for the sick, speaking up for those without voices, and giving care. This was what defined his life, and it's actually what frustrated most of the, the religious leaders of the day because they were so frustrated. He, he, he not only hung out 
with the prostitutes and the people who were always drunk and the people who were always eating and the people who were stealing from each other. He, he, he didn't just hang out with the lepers that were sick that everyone else avoided. He actually kind of spoke and taught that if you weren't doing this, you weren't really obeying the law of God based on the law and the prophets. Right? In, he caught, constantly taught about this. In the passage that Brianna read for us from Luke chapter 10, he has these religious leaders who come and say, you know, like, listen, help me figure out what things I really need to do and don't do. And that's when he tells that amazing parable that many of us know, that story of the Good Samaritan. This story about how, you know, a man is traveling, he's, he gets the, the junk kicked out of him, and then there's people who pass him by. And remember, he's, Jesus is being talked to by religious leaders. And so his first two is like a priest and a Levite. He's playing to his crowd. Jesus is awesome. He's awesome. He plays to his crowd. And he's like, these guys passed by. They saw him hurting. And they had duties. They had jobs. And there's reasons they passed by, but they still passed by. And then he picks their enemy, the people that they hated the most, and said, it's that guy when he comes and he cares for him. And then he looks at the leaders and says, now tell me, who is it? Who is it that shows mercy? Who's the neighbor in this scenario? And the man's like, it's the one who showed mercy. Yeah, now go and do it. Go show mercy. Go care. Go love. This is his call. What I love about Jesus is he, he recognizes that we have things that we have to do in life. We can't just stop all the time. But he looks at the religious leaders, and I believe that he would look at us and say, you can't use spiritual excuses to get yourself out of caring for people. You, you can't use spiritual responsibilities or church things that you have to do or I have to do this, 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 to get out of caring for what someone in front of you or someone that you're walking by really needs. And while some people here just excel at this pathway of connecting to God, it's natural for you, Jesus makes it very, very clear how this should be a part of every one of his followers' life. It's not the caregivers who give the care. It's all of us who are called to love all people around us. Caregivers will naturally be fueled and filled by that time. They will be able to demonstrate God's love through that. So will the rest of us who maybe fall a little low. It's okay that we fall low in this or the middle of the road. It's a responsibility we all still have. For some of us, it may feel a bit chorish at some times. The caregiver, it brings life to who they are. Just think about what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the Law and the Prophets. You see how Jesus frames this in the positive? He says, do to others what you want them to do to you. He, he doesn't phrase it in the negative. Don't do those bad things to people because you don't want those bad things done to you. He's not concerned with the, what we don't do to others. He wants us to do. He says, you've got to step up. You've got to love. You've got to care. This is part of it. Caregivers and caregiving, this is all about our engagement with people. There is no sitting on the sidelines as a caregiver. If you look throughout church history, what I find amazing is that there are certain groups of people that, that they would say, these are more holy people. These are special people that, that show us a different element of who God is, and they're never the people you expect. It's not the people in authority. It's not the rulers. But throughout church history, the, one of the most targeted groups by the church to say there's something different here was those with special needs. Many monks, if you read their writing, would say that they would look 
at individuals with special needs, and they would say they are more holy than we are. There's something about them that reveals God to us, and it would be a privilege to step into life with them. And over and over and over, you will read how they care for those with special needs that the rest of the culture would push aside. When a lot of culture continued to, and continues to, take those with special needs and say, this is, we don't know what to do here. The church has always stepped up to say, this should be different here. It reminds me of a, an amazing story from a book that I read quite often called Life of the Beloved. And I read this maybe once a year, sometimes twice a year. It, it, it's really, really good. It's by um, a Catholic priest. His name is Henry Nouwen. And before I read you just a portion of this, I, I want you to know that Henry was an amazing teacher who taught at some of the, the most sought-after schools. He was a circuit teacher for the Catholic Church. And uh, he went everywhere, and he came to a place, place in his life where he was so exhausted and burnt out. He was just fried. And so when he sought his spiritual director for wisdom, what should I do, what should I do, he, he, he was ready to quit everything. And after some time of silence, solitude, and with some direction, he found himself going to visit one of his best friends up in Canada who ran a community for those with special needs. It was a home and a whole retreat center to house individuals with special needs. So that's where he retired to, was to care in this place. When you read most of his writings, you'll realize they impacted him far more than he impacted them. And the story that I'd like to read for you, very simply, is about a woman named Janet. Is it all right if we do a little story time? Okay. Not long ago in my own community, I had a very personal experience of the power of a real blessing. Shortly before I started a prayer service in one of my houses, Janet, a handicapped member of our community, she said to me, Henry, can you give me a blessing? I responded in a somewhat automatic way by tracing with my thumb the sign of the cross on her forehead. Instead of being grateful, however, she protested vehemently, no, that doesn't work. I want a real blessing. I suddenly became aware of the ritualistic quality of my response to her request and said, oh, I'm sorry. Let me give you a real blessing when we gather together tonight after the prayer service. She nodded with a smile, and I realized that something special was required of me. After the service, when about 30 people were sitting in a circle on the floor, I said, Janet has asked me for a special blessing. She feels that she needs that right now. And as I was saying this, I didn't know what Janet really wanted. But Janet didn't leave me in doubt very long. As soon as I said, Janet has asked me for a special blessing, she stood up. And she walked toward me. I was wearing a long white robe with ample sleeves covering my hands as well as my arms. And spontaneously, Janet put her arms around me and she put her head into my chest. And without thinking, I covered her with my sleeves so that she almost vanished in the folds of my robe. As we held each other, I said, Janet, I want you to know that you are God's beloved daughter. You are precious in God's eyes. Your beautiful smile, your kindness to the people in your house. And all the good things you show us, what a beautiful human being you are. I know you feel low these days and that there's some sadness in your heart, but I want you to remember who you are, a very special person, deeply loved by God and all the people who are here with you. As I said these words, 
Janet raised her head, looked at me, and her broad smile showed that she had really heard and received the blessing. When she returned to her place, Jane, another handicapped woman, raised her hand and said, I want a blessing too. She stood up, and before I knew it, I had, she had put her face against my chest, and after I spoke words of blessing to her, many more people followed, expressing the same desire to be blessed. The most touching moment, however, came when one of the assistants, a 24-year-old student, raised his hand and said, what about me? Sure, I said, come. He came, and as we stood before each other, I put my arms around him. John, it's so good that you're here. You are God's beloved son. Your presence is a joy for us all. When things are hard and life is burdensome, always remember that you are loved with an everlasting love. As I spoke these words, he looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, thank you, thank you very much. You see, this never would have happened in Henry's life if he was not in a place where he was giving care. And he never would have known, because most of us are too scared to say, like, I don't want this whole thing. Like, what, 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 what is that? But Janet could say, I want something real from you. And something from inside Henry had to be birthed up. And he didn't even have to search for it. She let him know what he needed. And I will tell you that there are times, and I would... I will give testimony to this in my own life. My life has been changed here at Crossbridge uh, a ton through caregiving, through our individuals with special needs who are part of our community. They have changed who I am as a person. That I, I just, I understand and look at life completely different because of this. When we started Night to Shine at like six years ago or something, I'll be completely candid. I was terrified. I was terrified. You see, I know that, that in my house that I grew up with, my mom always was, we were visiting families who had kids with special needs, and we were there just as part of it. But really, my younger brother, he has such a gift when it comes to working with individuals with special needs. It's just like, man, this guy knows how to care. That's not me. But thankfully, there was enough people in Crossbridge who were great caregivers who took the lead on Night to Shine, and, and they helped lead it well, and they helped create this amazing environment, and I walked in that night terrified. Terrified. What, what if I'm not a good dancer with everybody else? What if something is expected of me that I can't give? What if, what if I don't have the right answer to a question? What if someone asks me to do something that I'm uncomfortable with? What am I going to do? Has anybody ever felt like that before in a situation? that you have no idea, you're walking in terrified, that's where I was, and it took a solid 10 minutes for me to realize how selfish, to realize how arrogant and prideful I was in that moment, because when I was on a dance floor surrounded by 70 other guests who had come, who when I say dance, they danced with, without a care. They danced like a celebration, like I believe we're going to be celebrating in heaven. They, they partied because they did not care if they looked good dancing or not. They wanted to dance, and I wanted to dance, but I cared about what I looked like, and I was changed because I realized they don't care what I look like. Why do I care what I look like? And if Crossbridge is going to judge me on how I'm dancing with these guests, well, that's on you. You're sitting on the sidelines. You're missing out on dancing, so... <laughs> But I could do that because they invited me in to experience and discover who I was, which was being free. Too self-concerned, too worried about what other people are going to think. And I didn't serve them at Night to Shine. They served me. 
And so when I look throughout church history and I see that lives are changed by working with individuals with special needs or caring for the sick and the poor and the elderly, when everyone's like, no, we can't do this, there's something about being in those moments that we reve- reveals something about us. This is what we miss when we're not engaging. But it, you know what it took? It took me hanging out with other caregivers, people who do this naturally, who understand this world differently. Caregivers, let me just give you a, a little bit of words of um, caution, if I can. There are some temptations for natural caregivers, just like there were for naturalists. Caregivers, you need to be very careful here. Um, and, and the first thing to be careful of, the four temptations, are judging. It's easy as a caregiver to look and say, well, I don't think what they're doing is, is right or wrong, or, you know, it's not this. It, this happens, actually, Jesus addresses it when there's two sisters in a home, and, and one named Mary, one named Martha, and Jesus comes in to teach, and one of them is sitting at Jesus' feet listening, and the other's like, Jesus, she's doing nothing. You know, like, get up and help me. You know, we got dishes. We got stuff to prepare. And Jesus is like, you just need to chill. Like, both of the things that you want to do are important, but she's chosen what's more important in this moment. So, so caregivers, it's easy to look and say, well, they're just sitting there. And to judge others by the way that they connect and say, they're not doing anything. We have to be very, very careful about that. Um, And just because people are not as active as you are doesn't make them less than you are, okay? Just because they're not as active as you are doesn't make them less. The second temptation is, is holding to narrow definitions. This kind of goes along with the uh, last one that we said there is, is when you hold to a narrow definition, if you think that the way that you show care is the way that everyone should show care, you're going to miss something. There are so many different ways to care for people, so many different ways to express God's love. And just like in Mordecai's life, when you find yourself as a caregiver and injustice starts to happen all the time, you're going to start to stand up and you'd be amazed how many caregivers turn into activists. And it's like those two, I don't know if you look at that uh, assessment that we took, they seem so separate. One's like, one seems like they'd come at you with a bullhorn while the other one might come at you with a washcloth. But the truth is that washcloth can quickly turn into like a whip on someone if you continue to not care. And they will stand up and you have to be very careful not to say this definition of caregiving, this is the only way that it looks. This is the only thing that it could be. An activist, they don't do anything. They just yell at everyone. No, 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 no. Listen, they are caring. And I'm amazed at how often caregivers and activists go together because when I sat with my mom and talked with her about some of this last week, activists came up real high. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. And when I texted her, I said, hey, did caregiver come up for you? And she's like, oh, yeah, way high. And I was like, that makes sense. These two usually go really high together. Because caregiving turns into this. Don't, don't put yourself in a box with this one, okay? Don't hold to a narrow definition. It's a lot of different ways. The third temptation is um, serving others through serving ourselves. This one is really a bit messy because some of us will begin to serve others because it makes us feel good. We'll begin to serve others because when we serve them, they say thank you. They appreciate it. They bring us value. And, and really, in those moments, we're not serving them for serving them. We're serving them so we can hear what we think we need to hear, that we hear appreciation, that we hear value, that we hear worth. That's, that's not caregiving. That's thievery. That's stealing from them when, when it's good to say thanks, but if we're doing something to receive a thanks, that is not caregiving. 
that's transactional. Caregiving is selfless, and it's just serving to serve. It's, it's being present to be there. We cannot find our value in how much we do for other people. And if they don't say thank you for something that you have done, if you find yourself ticked off and it's like, they should step back for a second and be like, wait a second, did I do this for them or did I do this for me? That may be the question that you want to ask. Are you serving or are you selfish in that moment? And the final temptation is uh, neglecting those who are closest to us. It is very easy for caregivers because most people are very appreciative when we show care for others. They say thank you. They see what we do. I don't know what your home looks like, but sometimes as a dad in my own home, I do things and no one cares. It's just the way it is. I know that moms, you experience this greatly in your home. You continue to show up, you, you, you sacrifice so much and no one says anything. It's really easy to neglect the family that we have at home in those moments and to start look out and say, I'm gonna serve others because it just feels better. At least it's appreciated there. And I will confess, I have said that at times. I have wrestled with that at times. It's much easier to, to love someone outside my home than inside my home, because at least they say thanks after we sit down for coffee. You know, it, it, it sounds bad saying that, but sometimes loving inside our homes is very difficult. But if we find ourselves neglecting the people who are in our homes, this is not the call of God. He has called us to care for the people in our homes. He has called us to serve each other. And in Ephesians, it tells us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We serve each other in our homes. And it starts there. And, and I know that in churches, there's a lot of different places to volunteer, things that you could do. And, and please hear me on this. Please, I'm begging you. Oh, I'm begging you. Do not use God to run from God. Do not use a responsibility to serve in the church or to serve in the community, to run from the responsibility of serving in your home first, of leading your home and loving in your home. There are plenty of ways to serve, but please let it start at home because a caregiver will quickly move to neglecting home. Quickly move that. Be careful if you find yourself away from home. Consistency is what Christ calls us to. And so as we close what it means to be a caregiver today, I would encourage you there's some steps to take or some opportunities for you. If this is a way that you normally express your love for God and receive that, you're, you're probably not going to need any suggestions. You're doing this. But for those of us who are a little slow on the uptake that need a little bit of help on this side, some suggestions for you that I, I would say is I, I look at what my mom does and go, oh, you give blood every week, every eight weeks? Some of you should do that that don't pass out. That'd be a great way to do that. I know there's a handful of people at Crossbridge. They have a routine. They give blood, and then they go out to lunch together. And I'm like, that's a great idea. I could do that as long as I close my eyes and not pass out. Um, I did give blood a couple of weeks ago as part of a Crossbridge drive, and everyone clapped for me when I got up and didn't pass out. And I was like, I love our church. Um, listen, there's plenty of you who have led a charge and a wonderful charge oh, through fostering and adopting children and caring for people that are in neglected situations. 
thank you for showing care this way. This is amazing. If you feel like that's something you're like, oh, it's been stirring. You may be a caregiver. This may be a way to express the love of God. Uh, there are plenty of people who volunteer at local things, not just in church. I would say there's definitely places to serve here, but there are places in our community serving on the rescue squad, um, a fire squad. You can, you know, do things like that. Uh, some of you are unbelievably handy. You know someone who needs help. Like, I can't do that. I can't even change my own oil uh, in my car. Some people are like, oh, I'll help you do that. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Thanks. And she's better at it than I am. And that's wonderful. Listen, we can all care and help each other in different ways. But if you find someone who can't do something and you could serve them that way, just step in and do it. You have different skills. Care. Give that care. Help them with house projects or whatever they need. Uh, uh, there are some exhausted parents here. Amen. Oh, man, do me a favor. If you're like, I kind of miss the kids that I had. Or I, I, I wonder what it's going to be like to be a parent at some point, maybe. Look to the parents who are like this. Can I give you a night? I, can I just can I just care for the kids for a night? You go out on a date. You go out to, to where it is, like, you know, to two or three hours. Uh, I'll put a movie on with them so you don't have to worry about it. But just go. There is an amazing way to serve by taking and watching someone's kids for them so they can go out. What a gift you could give them. Uh, there's uh, soup kitchens, homeless shelters. One of my favorites is Philly House right over in Philadelphia. We support them as a church. They're amazing. 365 days a year, three meals a day. Pick a day. There's ways to serve over there. At Crossbridge, we have CB special needs. And if you're thinking, ah, I don't, I don't think I could do that. Okay, that's cool. Start with Night to Shine. It's in February. Start with Night to Shine. You'll come alive in a way that you could not believe. And you'll go, oh, I get it. I get it. At Crossbridge, there's CB Kids. And it's like, that's not caregiving. Are you kidding me? Parents of little ones, you're here right now taking a breath. I get it. For those of you who serve in CB Kids, thank you for caring for these kids. They've got adults and teenagers who look at them and value them, that it's worth your time to be with them. That is so huge. What a gift. CB Local, there's different ways to connect in, into different things that we do here. Jump online. Go look at it all. All I'm begging you is in a tangible way. If you find your relationship with God just spinning, and you think, I can't do this, I can't. Go out and serve someone. Go out and care for someone. Take yourself out of the center and go care for someone else. And ask God to show you more of his love. And I promise you, if you do this to experience God, not to pat yourself on the back, you will experience a side of God that will remind you of how loved you are, how valuable you are, how needed you are to see his kingdom come here in South Jersey as it is in heaven. That's what we pray for. Caregivers, for those of us who are low, we need your help. Help us. Be patient with us, though. <laughs> Jesus demonstrates this at communion at the Last Supper by sacrificing the ultimate sign of caregiving, of giving up his body. And when he sits with his disciples, he has cared for them for years and, and been patient with them and walked with them. And as a church, we celebrate communion every week together to remember what Christ has done for us. That there are different ways that we experience God. And for at Crossbridge, we keep communion as part of our liturgy, our routine 
so that we can experience Christ together. And today, as we look at caregivers, I remind you that he cared enough for you and for me to give up his life, to pay the penalty for the sin that separates us from God so that we would be in a relationship with him again and we would be able to care for those around us and point them right back towards Jesus. Amen. Communion is not just, oh, we do it, whatever. This is a time where we remember what Christ has done, and he's called us to do this weekly with each other. And so as we prepare to receive communion, I want to encourage you that if you are um, a follower of Christ, that you have said, I, wanna, I, I believe he's the son of God, I believe in his teachings, and I want to, to follow him and his teachings. We say this table is open for you to experience and to receive the body and the blood of Christ. If you're still trying to figure out where you are spiritually, I would highly encourage you, um, stay where you are. There's no pressure to come and receive communion. We actually would prefer you didn't. You hang where you are, and we will celebrate together. Would you stand with me as we prepare to receive communion? Holy Spirit, as we stand, we change our posture to honor you in this moment, to remember that you held up this bread and you said, this is my body broken. And as we hear these snaps, we remember each sin and, and go, oh, thank you that you held up the cup of redemption and said, and this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That is even where we have missed areas of caring where there's been opportunities to care and we've just went, I could never do that. I don't have time for that. And we push it aside. Lord, we confess those times to you right now and we ask for your forgiveness. Holy Spirit, if there's anything like that in our lives, we just ask you to reveal it now so that we can confess. Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.